Hey, good morning, everybody. How is everybody doing today? Out of the mouths of infants and babes, the Lord has established his power. Amen. Um, welcome to Portico Church. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico. And it's so good to have you here this morning to worship God together. Um, thank you for being here. We've got a couple of announcements before, before we dive into Hebrews this morning. Um, first is that Abide is coming up this Thursday, so 6.30 here in the sanctuary. Um, we are opening our doors every last Thursday as just a space to come and pray, to receive prayer, to give prayer. Um, and so please join us for that. I'll be here. Um, so if you need prayer for something, come um, and receive prayer. So that's, that's a good thing to do. Secondly is July 15th and 16th. We are having foundations. So July 15th is a Friday night at 6.30. It's dinner with some of the leaders to kind of get to know some of the people of the church. And then the following Saturday, the very next day, um, is kind of a time of teaching to learn more about the church and also just to be equipped to live on mission with us. And so foundations is for anybody who's new and wants to get kind of more um, information and more of an experience of what our church is like and it's also our pathway for membership. So if you are um, here, you've been checking it out, and you're like, no, I think I'm ready to actually become a member, Foundations is the pathway to do that. And so please register for that. Space is limited, so um, jump on it while it's still open. Um, and then finally, if you're new, welcome. It's so good to have you here. We're glad that you're here, regardless of kind of what your background is or what your experience with church is. We're just glad that you're here. And so um, we hope you feel welcomed. And if you want to get more connected to the church, um, Stephanie Case is on our hospitality team. She would be happy to connect you and kind of give you um, all the information you need. You can fill out a card so that you're just kind of in the loop on things. So please swing by the Connect Desk, which is kind of in the lobby area on your way out, and she would be happy to get you connected. But yeah, welcome. Hopefully you feel welcome. Um, and I would love to get to meet you as well. Um, that's all the announcements I've got for you, so let's dive into Hebrews. We are going through Hebrews. We're just kind of getting started in this book that is, um, it's really a spectacular letter. Um, and it's actually not even really a letter. It's kind of a letter, but it's almost more of a sermon that gets reframed as a letter um, because it's kind of this sermon that is meant for all of the churches. Um, and so, Hebrews really, the theme that we're looking at throughout all of it is the revelation of the glory of God. So the glory of God being revealed. And what Hebrews is showing us is that the um, center of the glory of God is the person and work of Jesus. So everything in the Old Testament was actually just a shadow. And so if you, if you think of like Looney Tunes where... Um, Wiley e. Coyote is chasing the Roadrunner, and you know Wiley e. Coyote is really smart, and so he has this anvil suspended, and then triggers it to land on the Roadrunner right away, and the Roadrunner like zips through it, and then Wiley e. Coyote is standing in the shadow, and he's like looking around. Well, that's the Old Testament. The anvil is Jesus, right? <laughs> it lands. It fulfills the shadow. The shadow shows what's coming. And so Jesus is shown in Hebrews in a million different ways how Jesus is the fulfillment, it's the substance of what the Old Testament was trying to do. And so today we are going to look at, um, kind of be 
introduced into one of the major themes, which is one of the ways that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament is that he is the great high priest. So he fulfills the Old Testament by the great high priest. We're going to just crack that open, and then the next like six chapters actually unpack what that means. So get comfortable. We're going to be talking about Jesus as the priest for a while. Um, before I read the passage today, though, I wanted to share this because I think it helps us um, prepare for what we're going to read. Um, I was reading a book, and it said the first sentence of the book, which is always really important. You can tell a lot by the book about a book by the first sentence. The first sentence of this book is recognition is the first human quest. Recognition is the first human quest. Maybe it's the only human quest, but it's definitely the first human quest. And here's what the author was trying to, um, what, what he meant by that. As soon as a baby comes out of the womb, its eyes are programmed to recognize a human face. And its range of sight is like this. It's about 18 inches or so, which is about the distance from a mother or a caregiver's arms while feeding the baby so that the baby can lock eyes, see a face, and that association between care and nurture and provision and that face gets hardwired into the child. And this is how it bonds. And that is just kind of like come, you know, stock with every kid. Every kid is able to do that, to recognize human faces and to seek to be recognized. And we don't stop doing this. I know this because one of the things that was the most frustrating during COVID was when I was wearing my mask and I tried to bring up my phone. And I don't think this would have happened if Steve Jobs was still alive, but there's like this, the, the kind of like interface of the phone, it's almost like it shakes its head at you. It's like, no, that's not it. And then the password comes up. And it made me mad, like irrationally mad. And I think it's because I am not being recognized by something that's supposed to recognize me. And that's really one of the powers of that tool, of the phone, is that it recognizes you, and then it opens you up to a world that is curated for you. And that's why we spend so much time on them, is because it recognizes what we want. It recognizes who we are. It recognizes everything that we are. And this is something that, um, as you grow up, you want people to recognize you, but you want people to recognize you on your terms, don't you? You don't want people to recognize you probably for who you really are, but who you want them to think that you are. And this, this happens through kind of like that experience of shame that we all go through just by being in this world is when we are recognized for who we truly are, which is imperfect, finite, fallen people, we become shamed. And so we work really hard at hiding those things and developing kind of like a mask, a portrayal, that yes, we want that to be recognized. And so in the text here this morning, we're going to see that Jesus 
is our recognition. And he's our recognition um, not just for who we truly are, but also for who we were truly made to be. And so we're going to look at a few different things in this text. We're going to look at the garden because it references a psalm that is kind of a poetic um, meditation on what happened in creation and in the garden. We're going to look at this world. So what does this world have to say about who we are? And then we're going to look at Jesus as he lived in this world. And then finally, we're going to look to the future. So we'll go through those four things, but first, let's read this text. We're going to be in Hebrews 2. And Hebrews is in the back of your Bibles. It's one of the last books of, the, of, of Scripture um, in the New Testament. And it comes right after Philemon, um, right after Titus, but before James, before Revelation. So you can find it that way. Um, and we're going to be reading chapter 2, verse 5 through 18 this morning. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had, to make, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, there is a lot there. This is packed with rich, rich statements that are so important. And so, God, I ask that you would help us this morning, that you would help us see what you have for us this morning, that we would meet you, that we would know you, that this wouldn't just be information, but that we would actually trust it, that it would transform us. 
And God, ultimately, we ask that you would help us to believe it and to continue believing it for our whole lives. We ask this by the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so first thing we're going to look at is the garden. We have to look at the garden to see how Jesus actually helps us and how he is our recognition. So Psalm 8 is quoted here, and it's introduced in a really interesting way in verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. So we already know that the author of Hebrews is an Old Testament master. And Psalm 8 was a really, is a really important psalm. And so he didn't forget where this was. He didn't forget who wrote the psalm. It's kind of like, well, for me anyway, it would be like saying, there was a band that one time sang a song called Let It Be. It's like, I don't know who that is. Maybe you guys don't, but I know who that is. <laughs> and so what I'm doing is I'm kind of showing in an ironic way, I'm getting you to think about the band, to call it to mind, to remember how familiar it is to you. And so the author is doing that in the same kind of way, and he's also showing you that this is God who is testifying. He's showing you the heavenly author is the one who wrote this psalm. So he opens it up, and then he takes his audience back into the garden. Because Psalm 8 is looking at creation and then marveling that at the pinnacle of creation was placed human flesh, Adam and Eve. Was, they were given dominion over everything that existed. And so the psalmist says, look at the stars. See how big, see how many there are? Look at the heavens. Look at the oceans. Look at the forests. Look at all the creatures. What is man that God is mindful of us? Or the son of man that he cares for us? How can it be that we small, finite, somewhat insignificant in the scope of all of the cosmos, how is it that we have dominion over this? That's what the psalmist is doing. He's reflecting on this beautiful position that humanity has within the created universe. And here's the cool thing that you'll probably just have to take my word for now, but the, the basic essence of humanity in relation to creation is a priest. Because humans, their role was to relate creation and creator. They were to show all of the creation the glory of God by being image bearers. So how they formed things, how they put things into order Creation was supposed to look at humanity and recognize its creator. And humanity was looking at creation, including other people, and recognizing the creator. And so all of creation, the role that humanity has is to lead all of creation in worshiping and proclaiming and displaying God's glory in that way. And so even from the very beginning, even before sin entered the world in a perfect potential, the psalmist says, what is man, right? There's no deserving in this. 
It's like a complete undeserving posture because we recognize the weight of the crown that is placed on the head is too heavy for us. We didn't earn it. We can't carry it up alone. We actually are dependent on God to help us. And that's part of what the psalmist is talking about when he says his power is established in the mouth of infants and babies. His power is established in weakness. It's not in human strength, but it's in showing all of creation what dependence on God looks like. And so in the garden, we learn humans are priests. They're showing and relating creation and creator together. And that doesn't last that long because unfathomably, Adam and Eve reject it and we reject it. Right? We are not satisfied with that position. We're not satisfied to be dependent, to rely on God. But instead, we exchange that position because we actually were like, yeah, I actually would rather be God. I don't want to rely on God. I don't want to trust God for good and evil. I want to define good and evil for myself. And that leads us to looking at the world. <laughs> to looking at the world. Because the world's broken. It's shattered. There's pain, there's suffering, there's death. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to run through this passage and look at a couple different places where you see a description of the world and the status of the world as we look at it. So first off, it comes in this kind of, um, it's a very kind of cavernous statement where it's talking about how creation is put into subjection of man, right? And the psalmist is very clear. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. So all of creation is in subjection. But then he drops this statement, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And so what he's doing, what the author is doing here is he's, he's acknowledging that right now, we do not see creation in perfect subjection to Jesus. And thank goodness, because there's horrifying things that happen in the world. <laughs> there's horrifying things that still take place in the recess of our heart where our hearts aren't even fully in subjection to him. And so sin is reigning, death is reigning, evil is reigning. It's cursed. Creation is cursed. Because we, humanity, have stepped out of our places as being image bearers of God, and now we have decided to rule over creation as God. And we aren't good. We can't do that. And so everything starts to break down. Another place where you see this is um, in verse 15. We're talking about the work of Christ, verses 14 and 15. He's saying that when he's talking about the work of Christ, part of what the work of Christ does is it destroys the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And then at the very end, he talks about Jesus being the propitiation 
for the sins of the people. So I want to give you three categories to understand the world and what we're at, at odds against in the world. Those three categories are, so the devil, the world, and the flesh. So the devil, the world, and the flesh. Those are the three categories of things that are ruling in this world right now. The devil is the prince of darkness. He is the father of lies. He is the great deceiver, the great destroyer. So he is an archangel that is working against God for supremacy. He is kind of the leader, the one who tempted Adam and Eve to get them kind of in rebellion to him. He commissioned them into his service. That's the devil. He is the one who is roaming this earth, who's trying to destroy everything. It's his plan to undo the goodness of God's creation. But it's not just the devil. The devil's kind of limited. There's also something else that is at work in this world, and that is what is described as the world. And you can think of the world like this. I was thinking about this. This hopefully will make sense to you, some of you computer people. The world is basically like the algorithm that trends everything into death and destruction. So it's kind of like the thing that filters everything in the world and actually points it to death and destruction. So it's systems, it's structures, it's governments. All of these things, these principles of how things work, dog eat dog, the strong taking over and conquering the weak, these are principles of the world. And there is a power to them that impacts how we live on this earth. And so the world. And then finally, our flesh our own desires. The fact that we have inherited that initial desire to be God, we've inherited that from Adam and Eve. That we have a nature within us that is sinful, that is at odds with God. And so this is kind of like the great anti-trinity of evil, of the forces of evil. And these are all the things that are running amok in this world and we are subject to it, we are slaves to it, is what the author says. Because of fear, because of death. We have a fear of death that makes us slaves in this world. And notice that what he says about the world is not that the world is going to be made better by Jesus. The world's not going to be improved by Jesus. Jesus will bring a new world. He will bring a new heaven and a new earth to replace this one. And that's why he's saying at the very beginning of this passage, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Where Jesus reigns is in heaven, and he is bringing a new world from heaven to earth at his return. But we're not there yet. That's not what we see right now, isn't it? We don't see that. Everything in subjection to him, that's not what we see. So what do we see? And this is where, in verse 9, the author directs our gaze to Jesus. It's to Jesus that we need to look. 
in verse 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Let's unpack that for a minute. So one of the things that's happening here is he is putting Jesus in place of Adam and Eve as the fulfillment of Psalm 8. So Psalm 8 is about Adam and Eve. It's about the divine human couple that is ruling over the earth. And yet, after they have fallen, what hope is there that that would be restored? What hope is there that that would be remade? And so the psalmist, by putting Jesus in this role, he says that Jesus fulfills Psalm 8. That it is now Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels and who is wearing that crown of glory and honor. But why is he wearing that crown? It's not like Adam and Eve would have been wearing that crown for obedience, for the work that they were given to do. Jesus wears that crown because of the suffering of death. So when we look at Jesus, we don't see an exultant king who's coming in triumphal victory. That's not the picture that the author of Hebrews wants to give us. And that should bother you a little bit. What he's showing you is he's showing you a crucified savior. He's showing you someone whose weakness of human flesh is overcome, overwhelmed by death. The reason for this is because Jesus, when we look at Jesus, we see him dealing perfectly with all three of those three forces of evil that are subjected in this world. So by death, he destroys the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And so this is, remember in Esther, that ironic twist where it's like the weapon was used against Haman? This is what's happening here. The weapon of Satan is death. And now Jesus uses that against him. By dying, he becomes the perfect sacrifice. Because it's not just a son of man who is dying. We have to remember chapter 1 of Hebrews. It's the son of God. So his death can be effective for his people because of his divine nature. But his death is also effective for his people because of his human nature. It is really a human person who is put to death, who is suffering death, who is paying the penalty of sin. And that's the second thing he's destroying, isn't it? His death crucifies, his crucifixion is the crucifixion of our sin. You have been crucified with Christ, right? So his death is the death blow for your sinful nature. And that's an already and not yet situation, isn't it? We have been set free. We have the ability to not sin, but we still give in to temptation. We still are tempted. We still fall. We still sin. Because both of those natures are at work, but one is growing the new nature, the nature of spirit of adoption as sons is growing. So we see Jesus, he is our champion. He is the one who defeats death. 
And it's his death that sets us free from our slavery. But then we see that he is also our brother. Jesus is our brother. Look at verses 11 through 13. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So Jesus, his, the source of his sanctification is God. The thing that sanctified his flesh is God. And that is the same thing that sanctifies us, God. And so he shares in our nature completely because he is dependent on God as a creature. And look at that. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. He doesn't see our flesh, our weakness, our temptation, and shrink back or judge. But he helps. He ministers. He understands. He recognizes it because it's his flesh. He's our brother. And then in these quotations of the Old Testament, and they're mostly from Isaiah and the Psalms, notice what Jesus is speaking on our behalf to God. I will tell of your name, God, to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And then he tells us again, he tells us this time, I will put my trust in him, in God. He's leading us. He's going before us. He's showing us how to worship by worshiping with us. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me, he so closely identifies with us. He calls us children, sharing, partaking of the same human flesh. Here's why this is so important, why it's so important that the author here tells us to look at Jesus. In this life, in this world, look at Jesus. It's because in the wilderness, we need to be comforted. Like, this is hard. It's hard to live in this life. And we need comfort. I was reading um, The Horse and His Boy with one of my daughters and came to this part where um, Shasta, who's kind of like one of the main characters, he's on the run. He's a vagabond. He's running away from a really bad situation and he just keeps getting into more and more trouble, kind of haphazardly. He's not a bad boy. He just gets into trouble. Um, and so he is on the run again, and he runs into kind of like this description of like a cemetery or like a tomb, a tomb yard, where these like very menacing stone tombs are kind of all over the place. And so those are kind of freaking him out. It's late at night. He's scared. So he goes to the edge of the cemetery, and there's a huge desert, a vast expanse of wilderness that it leads to. So this is kind of the edge of the town. And so he, he's sitting there, and he wants to look at the tombs to make sure nothing's coming out of the tombs after him. But at his back, he hears these wild beasts. And so he's terrified that something might come and attack him. Well, after a while, what he thought was a wild beast comes up, gets closer and closer and closer, and it's a cat. It's kind of a big cat, but it's a house cat. And the cat kind of looks at him and just curls up and goes to sleep at his back. And the description that, um, that C.S. Lewis gives that is really powerful, I think, because the thing that was comforting Shasta was the warmth of the cat. It's the flesh. 
It was the warmth. It was the presence. So just the presence of that cat was giving him comfort. The flesh of Jesus should give us the same kind of comfort. Why? Because we see death. We see people dying. We see sickness. We see decay. Human flesh dying. Human flesh decaying. And we're afraid. We're afraid of that. And so when we look at Jesus, we see the same human flesh, the same skin, same hair, same eyebrows, same hands, the same feet, same nose. And we see it go into death, but then we see it alive again. What Jesus tells us as our priest is that human flesh is redeemed, and it's redeemed in me. You might die in this world, but I'm bringing a new world where you will never die. Your flesh, your hair, your eyes will see. And that's the comfort that he brings. It's his presence, his physicality. God knows that we need that, and so he gave Jesus to us. So look at him. And then finally, he, rec- he reconciles us to God. So he comforts us in this world, but he also reconciles us to God. Not by anything that we do, but it is his death. Verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a fancy kind of techn- or a theological word that describes the wrath of God, God's righteous, holy anger against all unrighteousness, all sin, all death, all decay. Propitiation means that that has been satisfied. God's anger towards his people is gone. His anger towards your sin is gone. And now here's how to think about God's anger in this way. Because we think of our anger and then just kind of import that onto God. God's anger is very different. It's completely holy. And it's perfect anger. So it's more like the anger of a very skilled surgeon who is cutting out cancer than it is the anger of someone who has just lost their mind in a fit of rage. And so when we see Jesus, when we trust him, when we believe in him, when we persevere in that, the surgeon's scalpel is placed down because all of the cancer is cut out. He has done that by tasting death for us. And now he sanctifies us. He is the one who leads us in sanctification. So this is getting back to not neglecting your salvation, paying close attention to your salvation, as the author had just reminded us last week. Part of that is your sanctification. Part of your salvation is sanctification. It's being made holy. It's being restored to that position that you were meant to be as a priest to this creation. So being made more like God. That's the simplest way to think about it. You're being made more like God progressively. And Jesus is doing that 
Because he's gone before you, and now as you look to him, you become more like him. So keep looking to him. And then finally, we look at the future. We see that a new world is coming. So don't let a world of death dictate your life. Don't get distracted by the algorithm that's at work in this world. It's going to be replaced. It's going to be thrown out. It's going to be upgraded. Instead, join Jesus in worshiping God. And here's the primary thing that the author wants to kind of leave you with this morning. And so it's where we'll end as well. Join Jesus in worshiping God in this way, knowing that because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, I'll be honest with you guys. Like, when I read this, I have kind of like a, I have some tension. (laughs) What do you think of when you hear that? Like, Jesus is able to help you when you're tempted. What do you call to mind? If you're like me, you call to mind all the times that you failed. Like, oh, man, really? Because it doesn't feel like it. Because I just get slaughtered by temptation. I fail so many times. And so I want to kind of challenge how we're initially interacting with this. Because we think of temptation in very specific ways, maybe. Very um, kind of individualized things. When we're tempted to do very specific behaviors, and then we fail. And then we kind of think, oh, those are the only times that I'm being tempted. And here's the real pressure it puts on you. Are you entitled to overcome temptation? Or are you undeserving? If you're entitled, then you're going to be like me. You're going to get really frustrated at the times that you fail. And that's your focus. And that's all you'll see. Your gaze will go there to your failure. If you're undeserving, if you know that at your core, you have no ability to resist temptation, then all of a sudden this category opens up And it's not just one specific behavior or a couple specific behaviors. It's your whole life. Your whole life is a trial. You are being tested by your life. And now think of this. Think of all of the times where you, a miserable sinner, have been able to love God, who have worshipped him, who have loved people that you have no business loving, Jesus is able to help us. He is at work in your life. See that for a minute. Know that he's not only able to help you, but he has helped you and he will continue to help you. He's going to bring you to the finish line. So go with him. Look at him. Don't take your eyes off of him. Don't Sell your eternal inheritance for the things of this world. Don't get distracted or caught up in your entitlement. But look at Jesus and be put back into that beautiful, undeserving happiness of Adam and Eve in the garden. Knowing that now we are looking to someone better than Adam as our representative. We're looking to Jesus, and he will come back. 
And so we get a glimpse into the future when we see Jesus. That's our future. He identifies with us. He has comforted us. And he will come back and live with us forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, we thank you for your promises, God. And I ask that you would help us that as we live in this world that is hard, that is testing us, we are aware of our failures. They're always before us, God. And so, Lord, I ask that this morning you would help us, that you would help us see the grace that is at work in our lives right now. That would, you would help us to recognize your fingerprints on our life that you are leading us to become more like you, that you are going to once again restore us as a kingdom of priests forever who are being led by our older brother, your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.